morning again. We are back in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 16. And uh, we'll be looking at just uh, four verses this morning. Matthew chapter uh, 16. And we'll be reading from verses 1 to uh, verse 4. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 16. 1 through 4. And the Word of God says, The Pharisees and the Sadducees came up and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seek after a sign, and a sign will not be given except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, I pray now that your spirit would just illumine our minds and use your word uh, so that uh, to fulfill its purpose to uh, make us more like Christ and less like ourselves. Father, we know that's your will, and I pray that uh, as we hear this text, that we won't just be hearers of the word, but we'll be doers. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Up in uh, northeastern Spain, uh, north of Barcelona, north of Girona, there's a small little coastal town called uh, Roses. And uh, for many years, it had the very famous, very, very famous restaurant, El Bui. El Bui had the chef of Ferran. He, uh, he did some exquisite stuff. I mean, uh, you would go, and um, if you could get in, at one point, it had like um, a year out to make a reservation. You, you had to plan a year in advance just to be able to get there. And uh, once you got there, it's just all these plates would start coming in front of you, a whole tasting menu, 30 plates, 40 plates of just all these little things. And, and the way he would prepare it, uh, he tried to uh, put as many culinary techniques as he could into e each plate. So it wasn't just boiled corn or steamed corn. Uh, he, he did all types of stuff with it just to, and then the presentation, the layout, it was just fabulous. I mean, it, it looked like pieces of art. And, uh, and then you would go and eat it. I've never eaten there. Uh, it was extremely expensive. But um, the, the plates that would just come out of the, the kitchen were just phenomenal, just seeing them. And um, he had this huge, huge kitchen staff. I mean, uh, usually restaurants have a small uh, kitchen staff and then a large wait staff. This guy had a lot more uh, kitchen staff than he had the wait staff. And uh, he was having this... Um, uh, staff meeting, and the, the people that he would find that would be working for him were chefs from around the world. Uh, people who were head chefs in, in restaurants would leave their post and uh, resign from there, go and volunteer for a whole year just to have, uh, say, that they worked at El Bui. Uh, so this is how, how big this guy is. And, and so he had all his staff there, and, and they're not people that just graduated from culinary school. I mean, these are guys who are have been chefs in other restaurants, and he's having this staff meeting there, and he's like, uh, do you know what we're doing here? And it was dead quiet. I mean, you watch the documentary, it's, it's funny. Uh, Aaron's like kind of looking down, like, don't look at me. 
He's like, it's okay if you don't know what we're doing here. Do you know what we're doing here? And uh, he finally said, we are creating unforgettable culinary experiences. That's what we do. We create unforgettable culinary experiences. Here's this kitchen staff working 12, 14-hour days. Day and night, week after week, they're working all these hours, and not a single one of them could tell what their purpose of there. Now, what's interesting is that um, it doesn't mean that the people that were working there didn't have their own purpose. Like I said, people had left good-paying jobs in, in Japan and France and the States and England. They left those jobs just to work for free a year with this guy. So they had their own purpose of being able to say, yeah, I, I did a year at Wuyi. Uh, some wanted to just learn more, and, and so they, many of them had their own purpose for being there. Uh, another thing that's very interesting about this, even though that they couldn't say what the purpose was, is that it, it didn't mean that they weren't putting energy in. Well, they were putting a lot of energy in. 12-hour days, 14-hour days, cooking and cooking and cooking, and the guy... <laughs> Uh, he, he, the way he expressed himself, I mean, he couldn't just very nicely ask for stuff. I mean, he just screams at the people, just screams and screams and puts them under pressure and, and is yelling at them and so forth. So they're dealing with all this stuff, and they're, they're working hard. They're working very hard. They're putting a lot of energy in, but they just didn't understand the purpose of the chef. Yeah, it's very interesting because in the story that we're going to be looking at today, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees don't really understand God's purpose. They, they don't really understand his plan, and so they're getting things wrong. And, and we could take it a step further to now, cross that bridge or the time bridge, and, and come to now that sometimes we, we don't really get what God is doing. And it doesn't mean that we're not coming here with our own purpose, with our own desires, and it doesn't necessarily mean that we're not working. We can be working very hard, maybe working in the wrong direction, working at the wrong stop. What we see here in chapter 16 is that this uh, context has been developing, where Jesus has been presenting his credentials that he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. Uh, he is the one who uh, is going to establish a kingdom, the kingdom of God here on earth. And he's been doing this through three different ways. The first way is through his teaching. He's been teaching through parables, teaching through the Old Testament, teaching, reinterpreting scriptures, so they had misinterpreted scriptures. Now he's reinterpreting it so that they can understand it correctly. Through his teaching, he's showing his credentials. A second way is through his miracles. He's doing these very powerful miracles. I'm not talking about little magic tricks of making the coin disappear, right? Which hand is it in? I'm not talking about that type of thing. He's making the lame to walk, the blind to see. He's doing these things. And a third way that he is doing that is... Um, uh, through fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. He's fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. And you would think then that uh, these people who are the Sadducees and the Pharisees who are very well versed in the Scriptures would be able to look at the Scriptures and look at his life and say, wow, it's him. Just like when you receive a package, you look at the bill and you see what's supposed to be in the box and then you look in the box and voila, it's the same. You got your order, right? They should have been able to look at the scriptures and say, hey, it's Christ. But unfortunately, they have rejected him. Uh, they have rejected him. The leaders have rejected him. And uh, they're enticing the people to not accept him. What we're going to be looking at today is that Christians must know the time period we are in 
by studying attentively God's purpose and plan. That's, that's what we're supposed to be doing. We, we must know the time period. We must know where we're at. And, and we do this by studying God's purpose and plan. And what we're going to look at now is our first point, which is an ill-formed question. Verse 1. We see that it starts off with this ill-formed question, and we get introduced to two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were a group of people who were separatists. They, they were very religious, very uh, zealous for, for religion. They, they loved the law, but they loved it to a point that they decided to build uh, barriers around the law so as to make sure that you never broke the law. So if, there isn't a law, but if there was a law that said you can't touch the flower, they said you had to be six feet from the flower. Now that's not what the law said. The law said just don't touch it. You could stand close as you want and not touch it. But they decided to build rules upon rules upon rules to make sure that uh, you didn't even come close to that flower. And in that way, they thought that they were obeying the law. But the problem with developing rules like that on the exterior is that it doesn't deal with your heart. And that's what they kept on having a problem with. Because as I would say, wow, look at me, I'm, I'm, staying, I'm staying nine feet away from that bad boy. There's a pride that swells up in me. And even though externally I am obeying, inside it's not addressing my heart. We know from James chapter 2, verse 10, says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. So they have built all these laws and rules, and none of them have addressed the inside. This is sad, because sometimes we do this. We make rules and regulations for our kids, and none of them address their heart. We try to get them to behave a certain way, act a certain way, look a certain way. And we don't try to reach what's going on deep in their heart. And that ends up terribly. And that's what the problem with the Pharisees are having. And another thing about them is that they did not care much for Rome at all. They, they really disliked Rome. They didn't like how Rome was involved in their nation. They didn't like how Rome told them what to do. They didn't like how they had to pay taxes to the Romans. They just did not like Rome. The other group that we see here are the Sadducees. Now, this group is uh, a little bit different. They're, they're a little bit... Uh, they're a little bit more involved in politics. Not so. I mean, they read the scriptures and they know the scriptures, but they, they really love politics. And um, they're, they're kind of this combination of priestly and nobility. And we know from Mark chapter 12, verse 18, and Acts 23, verse 8, that they did not believe in the resurrection. So they come to Daniel chapter 12, and it says there's a resurrection of, of the just, and there's a, a resurrection of the unjust. That doesn't mean that. What does it mean? I don't know what it means, but it doesn't mean that there's a resurrection, right? Uh, that's how they would do. It, what's interesting is that you have these two groups that are uh, opposites. Because the Sadducees, they liked Rome. They loved playing the politics. They loved the authority that they had. Whereas the Pharisees disliked it. Theologically, they were on opposites too, but they have this same enemy. It's Jesus. So they're willing to put aside their differences to join forces to beat this enemy, Jesus. That's, that's what they're going to do. Now, as we look at this, we see that there are two uh, participles that are defining them. And the first is that they uh, are coming up, 
They came up, and the second is that they're testing Jesus. And the verb that's dominating this uh, verse is that they asked him. So here they come to ask a question. And specifically, what they're asking is for a sign. Now, if we were to look up the word sign in a Greek lexicon, uh, we would see that it's a sign or distinguishing mark by which something is known. So uh, any type of mark. Uh, for the longest time, we had a, a little mark on the front. Somebody has smoothed it out. We had a nice little mark right there. It was a scratch. Uh, but it distinguished this pulpit from all the other pulpits, right? Uh, but on a deeper level, a sign can also mean an event that is an indication or confirmation of intervention by a transcendent power. Isn't that great? Doesn't that bless your heart? It, it means that, that something which God was involved, something divine happened, a miracle. So a sign can just be a mark or it can be a miracle. Uh, we, we all know, if we've looked in dictionaries, that sometimes dictionaries will give a definition, but sometimes we'll be out and about and we'll hear a word being used and it won't really fit into those definitions. Uh, so a context, uh, how it's being used, kind of gives more force to what a dictionary was saying. So as we think about this, we think about this sign, but what is he trying to, what are they asking for? Well, all four evangelists use this word sign. John uses it in a very specific way. I would encourage you to go to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, and verse 30 and 31. Uh, Jesus is addressing Thomas and the disciples, and he's speaking to them. In John chapter 20 and verse 30, he says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these signs, his whole book, his whole gospel is designed around eight miraculous signs that Jesus does. These signs have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So in this sense, sign is a, a little bit more than just a marking. It's a confirmation that he is divine. That, that's what's going on here. So we come back to Matthew and we start wondering, is, are they looking for like a name tag? Like, I want to see your name tag. And unless you have a name tag, you know, oh, love, here I got it, Jesus, son of God. Oh, okay, you're good. No, they're not asking for something like that. They're looking for something above, greater. I mean, and we can see this from the context because he uses this uh, uh, preposition. He wants a sign from heaven. It comes out of heaven. Now, there, there's a little bit of difficulty in this, in asking for a sign. And the problem of asking for a sign is that they've already asked for a sign. You remember Matthew chapter 12 where Jesus is doing these miracles and he's healing people. And at one point he gives sight to the blind and, and someone screams out in the crowd and says, this must be the son of David. And they were like, no, 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 no. He's doing this by the power of Satan. That's what he's doing. He's doing this by the power of Satan. He, he's not the son of David. By saying that he was the son of David, they're acknowledging that he's the Christ, the anointed one. They're wanting to have a sign. And they ask him, after they say that he's doing this through the power of Satan, they say, give us a sign. Now what's happened between chapter 12 and chapter 16? Well, just the highlights, I'm just going to give the highlights. He fed over 5,000 people. 5,000 men plus women and children. And he did that with very few resources. 
Then uh, he, he walked on water. You remember there was a storm. His disciples were in the boat. They were rowing. They're supposed to be the professionals. Uh, they've been out on sea. They know the sea. They're the professionals. And here, and here comes the carpenter. What does the carpenter have to do with the sea? Not very much. But here's the carpenter. And the carpenter stops the water, stops the storm, and gets them to the other side. They, if you know, if you read from John chapter 6, you'll know that they also went to the other side and they had heard what Jesus had done. So they knew about the walking in the water and the calming of the storm. And then he, Jesus fed 4,000 men without including women and children. And of course, he's healed all kinds of people. It said, all, whatever ailment they had, they brought them to Jesus, they put them at Jesus' feet, and Jesus healed them. So what other sign can he possibly do for them? What else can be done that can change their heart, their, their hardened heart, to accept that he's the Messiah? That's the difficulty with signs and looking for signs, looking for confirmations, is that our heart is never satisfied. We want something else. We remember Gideon, right? Puts out the fleece, puts it out again. God says, go, you know, just get to it, you know, obey. Signs are very difficult because they, we think we will have... Um, more confidence, but it doesn't create more confidence. Now, what we see here is that pride aligns their motives with Satan. Pride aligns their motives with Satan. Uh, we all come with presuppositions. And when they're coming to Jesus, they're coming with certain presuppositions. They're not just some blank slate. And it says there that they're coming to test Jesus. That's what they're doing. They're testing Jesus. This word, this exact same word, the other time that it's used in Matthew, is used in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, where it's in reference to Satan, and Satan wanting to test Jesus. So in a certain way, they are, their, their pride is making them act like their father, like the God of this world. That, that's what they're doing. Their, their pride aligns them. It doesn't put them closer to God. It aligns them with Satan. And just as Satan acted to tempt Jesus... Now they're going to test Jesus. They're going to tempt him. In a certain way, they are assuming that they are right and Jesus is wrong. They're the ones in the right and Jesus is wrong. Have you ever heard of people like that? God did a mistake when he let me have this sickness. God did a mistake when uh, I lost my job. God did a mistake when he brought the spouse into my life whatever it might be. And they blame God and they think themselves as righteous before God and that they're the right ones and the other people are wrong. They're coming with a certain pride before. And then they're also thinking that they're morally superior to Jesus. You come and give an account. Let's see if you really are. Let's write down. Hmm. Let's see if you pass this test or not. Can you imagine? To their creator, their sustainer, they're asking a test after he's done so much. There's a pride and arrogance that says, it's not enough. You need to do something else. Pride grasps for power. It does. Pride grasps for power. Here we see both the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're coming to Jesus because they just don't like how things are going. He's gaining influence. They're losing their influence. They, they want to have this power. It's something very interesting about how sometimes we start ministries and we start ministries with the idea of serving. And, and we want to serve. 
we don't have anyone that puts out the music for the choir because we don't have a choir right now, right? So I'm going to use, let's use person X that is in charge of putting the music for the choir member. I don't know who that is. I don't know if that thing has ever existed, right? Uh, that's their ministry. Somewhere along the line, though, that ministry of serving all of a sudden becomes their ministry of serving. And uh, someone decides to help them out, and they put the music in the folders before them. Ha, ha, ha. <coughs> what are you doing? Well, I thought I'd help you. Hmm. And then it starts talking. They thought that, I guess that I, I'm just too dumb to put music in folders. Hmm. What happened? Somewhere along the line, they became prideful. And it wasn't an act of service anymore. It was their ministry. And someone has infringed upon it. And they're grasping for power. The other thing pride does is pride corrupts the mind. It, it corrupts the mind. They should have come to Jesus and asked humbly how they could know God. Uh, but instead, they're motivated by their pride. They should have come and said, how can I follow you? Uh, how can I be right with God? But instead, they're not worried about that. They want another sign. Uh, there's something very interesting about pride and how it corrupts our mind. And I'll use another illustration here. Uh, sometimes uh, we'll hear uh, people gossiping, slanderous talking bad about somebody else. And in our mind, we'll say, that is wrong, it's sin. In fact, not only that, if that person were to come to us, we would tell them what they need to do. First, they need to humble themselves before God. They need to confess their sin, and then they need to go to that person and say, I'm sorry, this is what I've done. That They'll be able to tell that person just like that. But what happens when we do it? All of a sudden we get amnesia. We don't even know what to do spiritually. Humble myself? Well, I'll talk to God. We don't know. We, 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 it corrupts our mind and we don't know what the next step is. Now, please don't think that I'm somehow giving the excuse that you can continue doing these type of sins because uh, it's corrupted your mind. No, 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 no. We have to humble ourselves before God. We have to confess our sins. We know from uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 20 through 22, 23, that when we sin, God hands us over to our own corruptness. So it takes humbling ourselves before God and letting him illumine our minds so that then we can take the log out of our own eye, right? They should have humbled themselves, confessed their sins to God, apologized, followed after him. But instead, they're going to uh, ask for a sign. Now, what we see here is now this leads, uh, an ill-formed question leads to an undesirable answer. It leads to an undesirable answer. Matthew chapter 2 says, uh, but, when, uh, but he replied to them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. So here they are, these Pharisees, they want a sign from heaven. Uh, and um, in Greek, the word heaven and sky are the same word. So you, you, want, a, you want a sign from heaven? Look up at the heavens and you see the red sky. You know, uh, I give you, it's not what they're really looking for, right? Uh, he points to the sky. And uh, I guess Jesus has a little bit of a sense of humor in that way. Uh, and he tells them, look, you do this all the time. 
So you look at the clouds and you say, oh, look, clouds in the evening. Uh, we're going to have fair weather the next day. Uh, verse 3. But in, in the morning, there will be a storm today and the sky is red and, and threatening. It, it's gloomy. It's dark. And somehow they can tell the difference between the two things. They can look at the clouds. Now, they've never studied meteorology. They don't have degrees in there. They're the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They, they've studied law. They've, they've studied um, the, the scriptures. They've studied politics. But they're not meteorologists, but they can go out and look at the signs in the heaven and make certain determinations. And, and what it says there, it says in verse 3, uh, do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? This word for times uh, carries this idea of a time period but it can use in a special sense as a, a period characterized by a special uh, aspect, of, uh, an aspect of special crisis. What, what's the crisis that's about to happen? The crisis is that the God of this world is about to be dethroned through, through Christ dying on the cross, rising from the dead. That's the crisis. They don't understand the crisis. They don't understand what's about to happen to who they're following. But Here's these people, they can look at the sky and they can make a certain determination. Uh, I don't think we should have a picnic tomorrow. Hmm. Uh, I think tomorrow's going to be a great day for a picnic. But they are not able to discern spiritual things. Now, uh, what this brings is the sadness of their discernment. The sadness of their discernment. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, they were theological leaders of Israel. They weren't weathermen. Uh, you know, this is just a side note. Well, being a weatherman is the only profession where you can be wrong 90% of the time and still have a job. It's just a fact. Any other person, 25%, you're out of there. Uh, not weathermen, they can be. But here's these, they're not even weathermen. And they can look at the sky and they can discern things. I wonder how that would be for us today. Because I, I feel that sometimes we probably have the same problem. See, we have a lot of information about sports. And uh, based on this thing and this and that and the other, this person's going to win the Super Bowl. And based on how this team is playing and that team and, and Madrid against uh, Barcelona, I think Madrid's going to win the Copa del Rey. And I don't know who watches golf, but uh, somebody watches golf, they have to. This person is going to, to win. And you have all this information about sports. Some people have a bunch of information about plants. This is this type of plant. It needs this type of soil. Uh, it has this type of fungus on it. You got to use these type of fertilizers on it. And, and this type of plant needs this type of light. And they have tons of discernment on plants. There's other people that have tons of information on stocks, stock markets. They can tell you where we're at, where we've been. And they can tell you pretty close, not like a weatherman, but really close to what we're going to be tomorrow, next week, a month from now. They have discernment about that. Some have discernment about politics. Oh, they study politics. They can tell you what the next four years, what the next eight years is going to look like around the world. They can just tell you the whole political climate. And they have discernment from looking at different political leaders and so forth. They can tell you. But you ask them one spiritual question, they look like a deer caught in headlights. What? 
And I'm not saying that it's bad to know any of these things, to know sports, to know plants, to know stocks, to know politics. I'm not saying it's bad. But when it, you can't even make a spiritual comment, you, and you have no spiritual discernment at all, that's sad. And that's what he's saying to them. You can look at the sky and tell what the weather's going to be like, but you don't know what time period we're in. You don't know about the crisis that's about to happen. You better, you better jump ship. You better start following me, is what Jesus is saying. But they just don't get it. Now, why should we be following Jesus? Why should we be knowing his plan? Why should we be knowing his purpose? Well, according to 1 Corinthians 6.20, it says, For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. We've been purchased. We've been redeemed. We're not our own. Therefore, we should know the plans and purpose of those who have bought us, right? God. Uh, Ephesians 1.5 says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. We've been adopted. We're not our own. We're part of a family. We should know what the purpose and plan of that family is. It just makes sense. How do you do this? How do you get to this purpose? How do you get to this plan? Well, you have to do it by studying. Studying to be able to discern. You have to study to be able to discern. Uh, discernment comes from being able to distinguish between different things. Uh, having that capacity to, to distinguish. I'm going to use uh, an example from uh, a Venezuelan instrument, the cuatro. Now, um, this is a very popular instrument in in Venezuela. In fact, uh, if you go to a church that's very rural, uh, you won't find a piano or even a keyboard. You definitely won't find an organ, but you'll see a lot of services being played with this. Now, they, uh, they have different styles of music, uh, different strum patterns uh, for uh, their folkloric songs. So uh, there's two that are very similar, uh, joropo and pasaje. Joropo goes like this. That's joropo. Pasaje is very similar, but it's a little bit different. It goes. You see the difference? I'll do it one more time. This is joropo. This is pasaje. See the difference? It goes, joropo goes, Soft, soft, hard, soft, soft, hard, soft, soft, hard, soft, soft, hard. Pasaje goes hard, soft, soft, hard, soft, soft, hard. It's a difference. Now, uh, it, if you were to listen to Venezuelan folkloric music, I, probably none of you have, but if you were, do you need to know that difference? No, if you're just going to listen, it makes no difference if you're listening to Joropo or to Pasaje. But say you decide to get involved. Say you want to play. Say you've got the charrasco, or you're going to play the drum with it. Or say you want to dance to it. Do you guys want to see how you dance to the different? Uh, just kidding, just kidding. See how many sinners were out there. See, uh, just kidding. Uh, if you were going to dance it, it would be different too. It would be different. See, it makes no difference if you're just going to listen to the song. It makes absolutely no difference. 
But if you're going to get involved, then you've got to know when the beat is. That's the same thing about scriptures. If you're just going to read, just read it. If you're just here for yourself because this is Sunday and this is what Americans do on Sunday, it makes no point in discerning things. It makes no point in discerning, uh, are, we, are we Israel? Or did God treat Israel different and, and something else is going on now? Is what's going on right now the same as what's going to happen in the future? Is what we're doing now have an influence in the future? That's called spiritual discernment, knowing where we're living, what we're supposed to be involved in, what we're supposed to be doing. This chapter 16 introduces, for the first time, Jesus introduces the church. And it's something radical that they don't even grasp. They don't even get it. Because in Acts, they're still wondering, are you about to establish the kingdom? And he's like, I told you back in Matthew 16 about the church. See, if you're going to get involved, you've got to be able to discern things spiritually. If you're going to just sit on the sideline, it doesn't make any difference. Just read it and be done with it. But if you're going to get involved in God's purposes and God's plans, you have to study. It doesn't just pop out. You just got to study and read it. It doesn't take a huge IQ. It just takes consistency of reading God's word and knowing it. Here we see that um, they, they just didn't care. They should have been studying to be able to discern, but, but they didn't. Now this Studying, uh, this will lead into this undesirable answer. Now is going to lead into a hostile reaction from God or from Jesus. It's going to lead to a hostile reaction from God or from Jesus. You see there in verse 4, he says, An evil, that word evil carries this idea of being morally worthless. Morally worthless. They, they add no value to any type of morality. We, we see these type of people who uh, have the incapacity to discern things spiritually. Uh, they'll criticize one thing at one point, and then they'll praise that same thing at a different point and say it's wonderful. Why? Because they have no capacity to discern things morally. They, they have no discernment. And you see this. It happens on every news channel here in the States and around the world. And in any conversation that happens, people will praise those things that happen to they like, and then they'll criticize things that happen to not like. And what's the basis? It's just on what they like and what they dislike. And here's Jesus, he calls them, he says, you are worthless, morally you are worthless, you are evil. Not only are they evil, but they, uh, they're adulterous. Now we understand adultery in the sense of um, sin, where someone commits adultery, but it's the idea of being an unfaithful creature. An unfaithful creature. And that's what he's trying to describe. In Venezuela, my parents had this, um, uh, it was kind of a, a, a mutt. And um, this, this dog would, uh, was supposed to be the guard dog of, of the church. And uh, I would feed the dog, I would pet the dog. And then I would turn around to uh, talk to somebody, and sure enough, he would bite me. I mean, this thing, and he would go like that. He would, he'd kind of sneak behind people and grab them, right? Um, he was an unfaithful dog. You, you would feed that thing, you would pet him, and he would just be wagging his tail back and forth and all happy, and then you would start doing it, and he'd come and bite you. It, it, it's, this is what they are. They're unfaithful. Their creator, their sustainer is there, and they'd rather be with the God of this world. So he calls them, they're evil, 
an adulterous generation. And what do they do? They seek after a sign. They're looking for a sign. That's what they want. This is hard because many times as Christians, we want to pray that God will give us a sign. And sometimes when we're praying for a sign, it shows more our lack of faith than our desire to know the will of God. That's what they're asking. They're asking for a sign, and he's saying, you're an evil, adulterous generation that seek after a sign. The only sign that's going to be given is the sign of Jonah, which he's already described what the sign of Jonah was, that he was in the um, belly of the sea monster for three days and three nights. For them to see that sign, they're going to have to totally reject Jesus as their Messiah. That's the only way that they're going to see that. And they'll crucify him. And he'll spend the three days and three nights. And that's how deep that they're going to go in rejecting their king. That's the only thing. And then it says, and he left them and went away. Theologically, they, they, they don't have a clue what that meant. That Christ has just walked away from them. They had an opportunity to say, I I want to follow you. I'll give up everything. I'll go just after you. And it ended up with Jesus walking away from them because they were looking for a sign rather than accepting all the signs Christ had already given them. Many times we go searching after signs even though God has revealed himself here. And we can know him. We can put our faith in what he has revealed You see that Christians must know the time period we are in by studying attentively God's purpose and plan. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be studying attentively God's purpose and plan. See, an ill-formed question will lead to an undesirable answer, which will lead to a hostile reaction from God. So, So what do we do? What do we do? I think the first thing we need to do is examine our heart. What's motivating me to go towards God? What's motivating me to seek after God? Is it to say, you need to do one more trick? I just don't know if I can trust you. Do do one more trick, do one more miracle, and then then maybe I'll trust you. No, we've got to examine our heart. One thing that we've got to see is, are we asking questions that we should know the answer to? Boy, I'd really, really, really like this girl. Beautiful girl. I think I'm going to marry her. She's unsaved. God... Do you want me to marry her? <laughs> that question's already been answered. Why do you got to ask it again? Right? Uh, sometimes we ask questions that have already been answered. And we shouldn't be doing that. We should be accepting his word and living it out in faith. We should evaluate what God answers us and we should humbly seek God instead of our personal agenda. Here we see the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they, they have pride and it's consuming them. They're able to look at natural things, but they're not able to discern things spiritually. And what's sad is that many times us as Christians, we can tell all types of physical data, but when it comes to spiritual things, we're totally lost. And the reason that might be is because you've never trusted Christ as your personal Savior. You've never had that time where you've put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior to save you from your sins. And and at that moment, He saves you and He puts His Spirit in you that gives you wisdom. Maybe you had no spiritual discernment because you've never trusted Christ as your personal Savior. And I would encourage you today to that be that you would accept Christ as your personal Savior. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, 
thank you for your word. I pray now that uh, we'll see this example of these people that that ask questions that they should have not have asked. They should have asked a different question. They should have asked, can we follow you? Can we know your father? A whole bunch of different questions that would have showed a humble heart. Father, I pray that we will have humbleness in our heart and we will search after you. Father, that we'll have spiritual discernment to be able to distinguish the times, to understand your purpose and your plan. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you would, please stand with me and we'll